Welcome to Small Screeners, where we look at direct-to-video and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris. I got AJ here with me, as usual. Say hello, AJ. Hello, AJ. And we are diving back into the horror genre, the Stephen King horror genre, to be specific, uh, which we've covered at least once before. Never enough, Chris. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd say that. So we're looking at the Night Flyer, which premiered on HBO in 1997, based on a short story from Stephen King. This is a movie I mostly remember seeing ads for on HBO, you know, back in the 90s. I never watched it until a couple years ago. Actually, pretty sure I watched it when we first started talking about doing this podcast, because I knew it would probably be one that we would end up wanting to look at at some point. And you suggested this one for this episode i know you're a big fan of stephen king so let me know about your experience with the night flyer and i'm sure you've read the short story as well so feel free to to mention that as well well yes i definitely did read the short story when it came out in fact i bought the collection it was in the anthology prime evil edited by douglas e winner of all people who had written a nonfiction book about stephen king called stephen king the art of darkness that was uh very well known at the time and hmm. pretty well regarded in terms of books about stephen king from the 80s of uh you know his career up until about 88 or 89 it's really good and primeval was a really good collection it had some really good stories in it but of course we were all waiting for the new stephen king story and it's the night flyer and it's a character who is a minor character in the dead zone Mm. Um, in the novel the dead zone it's not in the movie obviously johnny has had his accident has gotten out of the hospital has gone home and dees shows up at his house his dad's house out there the farmhouse that he's living at and just tries to basically sell him on doing an article and johnny ends up kicking his ass just literally whips his ass off his front porch with his cane and everything and just chases him into the car and you know it's just to represent the kind of people that are coming around trying to to get a piece of johnny yeah but that's where the character richard d's is first introduced and so all these years later inside view and richard d's are in another story and we were all like oh fuck this is cool and the story is obviously very cool and it's very close to the movie uh we can get into the differences at the end uh, when we talk about that part of the movie spoilers and all that shit you familiar at all with the story uh, no, I... They had later... He, he collected it in Nightmares and Dreamscapes a few okay. years later. Uh, uh, I have a copy of Nightmare and Dreamscapes, but I have not... I've not read any of his short story collections. I've read a few of his novels, but I haven't I haven't read that one or, or any of the, of the collections. 
We're going to overlook this obvious blasphemy. Okay, (laughs) obvious, blatant disregard for the master, Big Steve. (laughs) You have these books in your house, you need to read them. We're not going to argue about this. I'm not going to, it's not going to be a conversation. You just, just read them. The short story is great. And the movie is very close to it. We can talk about that when we get there. Uh, the movie comes out in 97. Were you at all aware of it when it happened? You said you saw some commercials for it. Do you mean at the time or do you yeah, mean later I, on? I seem to remember seeing uh, ads for it on HBO or whatever, but I never watched it. And then I saw it, of course, in the video stores and stuff when it was released on, on DVD or VHS, whatever. I probably came out on VHS as well. Being I think it did. I have to. Yeah, I mean, I have to be sure it did first. But I didn't see it until like I said, a couple of years ago. And it's an interesting movie. Uh, the Night Flyer is a 1997 horror film directed by Mark Pavia. Pavia, Pavia. Written by Pavia and Jack O'Donnell. Uh, stars Miguel Ferrer, Julie Entwistle, maybe? Dan Monahan and Michael H. Moss, based on a short story by Stephen King. Love Miguel Ferrer. Don't. I don't mean to be a dick, but I think it's Miguel Ferrer. Well, I love I th- both of them. <laughs> I'm only saying it because I think that I think that's how I've heard people say his dad's I name. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't think I've ever heard his name pronounced before. So I'll take your word for it. Mo- it Mo- may Mo- be that I'm hearing people say it wrong. I mean, is that and how you're saying Ferrari it right? Ferrari. It's spelled like fair. Right. You know, F-E-R-R-E-R. But I think it's like Ferrar. Ferrari without the extra. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think. Because I think it's a derivative of a uh, either a Spanish or Italian name or something, an Anglicization. Um, but I like him. He he's usually great. I I usually think of him first from Traffic and then from, of course, uh, RoboCop. Wow, um, the very famous bitches leave. That's right. Bob Morton's uh, last moments on this fucking earth. He was uh, having a good time right up until then. Mm-hmm. He was living it up. You know, in this movie, he is like the biggest possible dirtbag outside of a serial killer. Like, as far as I can tell, he's never actually killed anybody, this character. But in every other way, he's just as vile almost as you can kid. In terms of just being a huge asshole. I would 100% believe that Richard Dees had killed somebody or had allowed somebody to die through his own action right in front of him and just didn't give a shit. Yeah, that seems more likely that he would just let somebody kind of like he's kind of reminds me of Jalen Hall's character or Nightcrawler playing the same oh. type of guy, basically. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good corollary, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you brought up Robocop, and that's where I think a lot of us first saw Miguel Ferrar, and he's just, he has a gift for playing the smarmy dirtbag. He just does. He has, and when he makes that smile, that laugh, the most punchable fucking face, <laughs> and he seemed to know it and kind of relished in it, was very good at it. This is the ultimate Miguel Ferrar douchebag part. Yeah. This is, it gets no douchebagier mm-hmm. in any, like you said, it's like the only thing you can imagine this guy hasn't done that a total, total scumbag would do is kill somebody. And Miguel Ferrar makes him completely watchable. Do you, I mean, it's like kind of want to set the guy on fire, right? <laughs> Watching him, don't you? No but, question. but. It's fun to watch because Miguel Ferrer is so good at it. So explain that to me, Christopher. Tell me about human nature. Break <laughs> yeah, it down. I can see somebody, you know, it, it being one of those cases where somebody's watching this movie and can't get into it because the lead of the movie is so unlikable or whatever. It doesn't yeah. bother me enough to, to, to hurt my enjoyment. But No, I, uh, no, I don't mean it like that. I was really just kind yeah. of playing around. It, it is nuts the way that works, though, because in real life, 
you would punch this guy. And watching it again with my wife, I, I know I turned to her at one point. And I said, you know that guy got his ass kicked so many times. So many times. We just didn't happen to see one happen in this movie. Yeah, but just the way the he point where he's taken the photos of the they, they referenced a few times the previous reporter that you know the new girl uh, is asking questions Body. about. Yeah. And you see Farrar taking the pictures of her in her bathtub with the bag wrapped around her head. And it's like, hey, I wonder if he maybe had something to do with that <laughs> instead of just showing up and taking the photos afterwards. It uh, is kind of funny that he's there. Yeah. It's like, is that standard procedure? And I mean, you know, he greases <laughs> the cops and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's fucking something to see him do it. And it's really good. He's really good at it. Now. I was waiting for this when it came to HBO. I'd seen a little bit about it. Pingo, a friend of mine, watched it with me. We were both pretty into it. I, I feel now, and I'm curious to know what you think, There are there's a lot of it that's impressive, especially the makeup. Yeah. There's, a, there's some really cool shots in it, but there's also some stuff that the budget kind of shows. Yeah. Maybe we're on location that day. They just didn't, it, it wasn't able to look as good as it possibly could. It looks like a made-for-TV movie. But in the general... It plays to the degree that this is what I wanted to tell you. That night in 1997, my friend Chris, <laughs> Chris Andrews, if you're out there, uh, I'm talking about you, fucker. He just happened to show up, and I was like, hey, dude, this new Stephen King movie's showing up on HBO tonight. I'm going to watch it. You can hang out if you want to, but that's what, well, that's what's happening here. <laughs> and you're welcome to watch it. And he was like, cool. So we hung out, watched the movie. He loved it. Well, we both did. And when it's over, he was just, he was incensed. He was pissed off. And what he was mad about was that the movie hadn't gone to movie theaters. He was like, I didn't watch that in theaters. Why didn't I play theaters? It should have been in the movies, man. That should have been in the movies. He was really mad. And I remember kind of, you know, like being on his side, obviously, but also kind of laughing that he was so into it uh, and felt about it so strongly. I wasn't laughing at him. It just, it surprised me. But my friends, like, super exuberant reaction to it aside, they did play this in theaters a little bit after it premiered on HBO. And it fucking... Bombed. Yeah, and I saw super that in, the, uh, in the Wikipedia stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember knowing about that at the time. I I definitely didn't hear about it playing anywhere near me because I would have driven at least an hour to go see. I'd already seen it on HBO. I would have watched <laughs> it on a big screen. I would have taken Chris. Fuck. But having seen it the way you did, years after the fact, no expectations of ever being able to see it in the theater. Do you think it's something that could have played in theaters initially, which I think was the plan? Uh, I mean. Yes, in the sense that I've seen much worse movies in a movie theater. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do think it looks a little low rent at times. Like you said, you can see the budget isn't super high. It seems like where the money mostly went was to K&B for, for some of the yeah. special effects and stuff like that and prosthetics. and There are some nice exterior shots here and there, especially mm -hmm. at night lit well to do with like, you know, silhouettes of the vampire walking off, you know, in the rain or uh, the, the, the black plane slash vampire bat cutting across the sky kind of thing not you know i'm not going wow this fucking i guess this is what your <laughs> smell like horror movie would look like no i'm not saying that but it doesn't look bad at a lot of it no 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 no. some of it does not look great that's what i was saying and then i agree with that you um, know, one of the things that almost dooms it to like tv level is dan monahan who i think is really bad <laughs> at this. i mean i've never i don't know that i've seen him anything else he is a peewee from the porkies movies yeah, I've never, I've never seen. If them. you don't know that, you don't know that. It's just, yeah. yeah. 
You know Porky's uh, and you don't. And and but, it's okay that you don't, and it's probably right that you don't. <laughs> but his his character is annoying and supposed to be bad, you know, bad person, but I think his performance is pretty bad as well. And then um, it's an interesting take on it because in the in the story it's written much more serious. He is, like you said, he's just a dickhead tabloid boss Mm -hmm. right and in this he plays it like a little kid who is having (laughs) the best time being a dickhead tabloid boss and it's an interesting choice the first one like his dad owns the paper and he's letting his kid run it yeah but you know what that actually for me i think that works because it's not like tabloid papers are you know (laughs) bastions of journalism but not that i can speak with any authority on them it's just the, the notion that he was just this smarmy little asshole you know in a position of power who he couldn't lose it, and him being the son of the publisher makes about as much sense as any. But it was just having a great time being the worst, the absolute worst, and it was just laughing at it. And I don't know. It didn't – I guess it didn't irk me the way it did you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like Julianne Whistle, although you can tell that this is her first movie. Yeah, it seems like – I think it's like, her only movie. Yeah, well, she – from what I could find, she was in this and in and out the Kevin Klein movie. Oh, uh, I know she married the director <laughs> – I know she married the director after meeting him on this. Okay. Other than that, I don't know anything about her. I didn't know she was in In and Out. Um, she, I mean, she may have had basically like an extra role. I didn't look into it. I just know she was. Those were her only two credits on at least what I looked at on Google. Uh, I think there's stuff that she does. I mean, I think generally she's really good. Actually, um, like I mean, I buy her as yeah. the you know the raw green reporter who's unsure, and part of that is probably her greenness as an actress yeah i don't Um, think she's bad at all really she she looks a little bit like maybe phoebe a young phoebe exactly crossed with jessica alba yeah so not bad to look at obviously (laughs) no no she's very cute but Um, yeah and she just seems very young and unformed and very like you said that works for her playing a very green uh reporter trying to that's why a lot of it works in that respect but i just think generally a lot of her performance is legitimately good there's a lot of stuff she does that plays all on her face and i I just i yeah i really like her and it's really just her and fucking miguel ferrar and the random people he talks to for five minutes in the movie yeah and this is something i was talking to my wife about and i want to ask you it would make a great tv show in the sense of it being like a limited series, because you could just do every episode being him one of his stops. Or, yeah. And you could just really get into it, would be stuff that wouldn't be in the story necessarily, but it would work. It, and it wouldn't be something where you were doing it just for the sake of doing it. You were doing it because you have a good character that you could just really kind of dig into. And you could just, I think you could make it work really well because it would be a play on the X Files and the Night Stalker and all that kind of thing. Kolchak. And following someone like Miguel Ferrar, especially nowadays, the whole anti-hero thing. It's not like the, the heyday of Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and Sopranos, <laughs> but you could have that as the main character for three episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's what, an what, aspect to it with him going to these different places, talking to people, Law and Order-esque, sort of, but like, yeah, it's almost... Uh, it's episodic. Yeah, it's a little bit private detective, too. He, he's not a private detective, he's a reporter, but it's a little bit... The TV private Walsh, investigator. Yeah. Yeah. A little Rockford. You know, he's pretending to be a FBI agent or whatever sure, at some yeah. point. Yeah. 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 You're totally right. That was an aspect to it that I thought was interesting. And I wondered how close that was to talk the short story if that was how he was working it or whatever. But it's pretty much exact. It's a remarkably faithful adaptation until the last 10 minutes. Oh, and the addition of, of Jimmy. Uh, which one is Jimmy? Uh, Catherine Blair. 
Oh yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, she's a totally new character, right? Yeah, and that is uh, the best choice for the movie, I think, because you it, it just gives it gives him a chance to do something other than monologue in his head or to himself a lot because a lot of the stuff he tells her is stuff from his inner monologue in the book I mean, in the story, and it just it opens it up a little bit in terms of making it not just him. <laughs> and, it, and it gives him ch- uh, a couple other, ch- couple more chances to be a complete asshole. Exactly. Exactly. By dressing it, her it, down it, and making fun of her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, path, career path to that point, or or locking her in a closet. <laughs> yeah, and it allows him to bring up the whole Dottie thing because I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, the Dottie character, the the lady who killed herself in the bathtub, that may or may not have been helped. That's mentioned, but just at the end of a paragraph kind of thing, or maybe only gets a couple paragraphs, like him remembering the way that this job can take you out like that. So that's there. But Blair, uh, Jimmy Blair, whatever we want to call her, she's a completely new character. And it just, yeah, yeah, it gives him someone to play off of. So that's always great. And now if anybody is listening to this who hasn't actually seen the movie, I guess we can kind of briefly <laughs> uh, describe the plot, which is basically... Here, I got you. Dees. Rick Dees is a tabloid reporter for Inside View. His boss comes to him one day... There is a murder at one of those small airfields, not a big airport, but one of the ones that's kind of rural. And they eventually end up figuring out that there are a couple of these. And he doesn't initially want to take it, but because of this young cub reporter who he meets and is you know, immediately kind of threatened by, even though he's not going to say it, that we talked about Jimmy Blair, he steals it back from her and because he's a pilot. And he follows what appears to be a 20th century vampire who has a flying coffin, more or less. And that's how he gets around. Rather than batted up, he flies in a small private plane, killing people. And Dees is hot on his trail. Will he find him? Will the vampire find him first? Are they the same? What do these bloodsuckers <laughs> have in common? Find out on tonight's episode of The Night Flyer. Is that basically it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and also, he, you know, he's getting warnings to stop chasing the Night Flyer or whatever. And stop you know, now. You don't know where they're coming from, but I think it's pretty obvious to the viewer that they're coming from the Night Flyer himself. (laughs) And so what he's doing is, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the episodic nature of it. He goes to the first airfield where the murder took place and he learns from the people who are, well, we already told all this to the cops. You know, it's the same old thing. He gets them to tell him the story and then we either have a flashback or whatever. And then we go on to the next one and then. We get to the end (laughs) and maybe there's a little bit thrown in, in between, you know, him being an evil fucker in one way or another coming across an accident on the road and just thinking, Hey, I can snap some pictures. You know, let's, uh, let's take advantage of this because that's what I do. I can sell this carnage Mm -hmm. somewhere or the defiling, literally desecrating a grape. (laughs) He, Richard D's will do <laughs> including shit in morgues. Do you know how cold those are? Yeah, yeah. His, his we opened that you were, our introduction to him basically is he's pissed because his editor or publisher or whatever refused to run pictures of dead babies that he's or a dead baby that he went to the morgue to take snapshots of. <laughs> and, yeah, where's uh, my goddamn dead baby? Yeah, that's an actual line of dialogue. You know, that's because that's the kind of, you know, publication we're dealing with here, folks. Stephen King remembers when the National Enquirer used to talk about moms that put their kids in the oven because the baby was possessed. 
you know, and shit like that. The, 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 the Inquirer went fucking hard back in the 70s, dude. It was wild. The stuff that I saw as a kid in the 80s was nothing compared to what the stories I've heard. Yeah. I asked people, adults in my life when I read Stephen King talking about that. I was like, did that really happen? And they were like, oh, the <laughs> National Inquirer? Fuck yeah, it happened. So this is, he's, he's talking about that. Because I'm sure some people watch this and go, what fucking magazine in the world? <laughs> just putting fucking pictures of dead babies. Come on now. But in, there was a world where this was pretty close. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of guy we're dealing with. What did you think watching it for the first time and having this unlikable character as the main character? And like you said, kind of seeing things as an audience member that maybe he should be aware of. But, you know, we've seen a movie. We know it's the bad guy talking to him, all that <laughs> shit. Knowing all those things, you know, even with it being that unpleasant guy, you think it works as a completely, it's an engaging, it's an engaging story and engaging character, even though he's a piece of shit. Yeah, I think is it so, is right? it because you are hoping he'll get his comeuppance, or you're just, or they just do it so well that it's captivated you in the way that a good story does? Like you're just, you just want to see what happens next. Well, it's it's partially that I'm a fan of the actor yeah. <laughs> beforehand, but also, yeah, there's this element. This guy's so so dirty and such a bad dude. You know. At the, he's not going to have a happy ending. <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of. So you are waiting to, to see him get his comeuppance. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Because I mean, I've always wondered, you know, especially when you know a piece of uh, a story, when you know a piece of material that something's based on, you go in with a familiarity to it. And reading it is a lot different than watching it. Yeah. Some people don't want to have that in their face. You know what I mean? Like you said, some people might be put off by this character, but you were not. I'm just glad to hear that. I mean, did you think it worked as an interesting? Because it is—it's not really a mystery. We know he's a vampire, right? Yeah. You're just but did it make? The, were you interested in seeing how it did resolve itself? Yeah, and I guess we can start kind of moving towards the ending. Well, one thing about the the uh, night flyer, like they show. So let's just say from here on we're on spoilers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> one thing that I thought was interesting was the couple who had died that he was investigating, and we saw kind of kind of flashbacks of her. Basically just watching her husband get murdered and, like, not caring. And it, like, I guess showed, like, oh, well, he's got that glamour thing that vampires have where it seems like she's already kind of uh, under his spell or whatever. Like a hypnotism. Yeah, yeah. And the husband seems to be, too, which we don't realize the first time we see him. Because, like you said, the first time we see him, we don't have that context. And the first time we see him, he's getting fucking slaughtered terribly. Right. While his wife is just kind of looking at it like she's watching the sunset or... Vaguely something on TV. Yeah, that glamour thing is kind of a trip. Have you come across that stuff in much of it? They don't really use that in vampire stories a whole lot, the whole hypnotism thing. Yeah, not not a whole lot. Not these days. Maybe it was more common in older vampire literature. Yeah. And usually I say literature like it's real, like it, you know, is the time back <laughs> book that Sex Machine mentions and from Dust Till Dawn. I just mean old stories and shit. No, usually when when I see it it's in, in movies it's it's be more because like the they're already being converted into vampires or whatever. Yeah, like they've been fed on once already. Yeah. And they're weakened. And I, I think that is kind of the case. It seems that way with the husband. The husband seems much more in a bad way during that flashback, and you see mm-hmm. him alive. Yeah, he's kind of just... Yeah, he seems scared. like he's... Yeah. You ever seen The Prophecy? The Angel War no. movie? Oh. I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Uh, he looks... Uh, Adam Goldberg is an undead like ghoul in that movie. He's brought back to life as like a, a slave by Christopher Walken. The, the husband reminds me of Adam Goldberg's look in that movie. He's not looking great. It's not a healthy thing is what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's all that. 
Now, I, you know, again, moving towards the ending again, I'm curious about like, you know, the Night Flyer. I don't know if they ever actually give him a name. I don't think they do. It's uh, just Dwight. Yeah, they call him, they call him Dwight uh, Renfield, uh, which is a play on the old Dracula movie. Uh-huh. The actor yeah, like, like Fry who played Renfield. Everybody who he, you know, he, he's doing like small time stuff at all these stops, killing a few people here and there. And then we get to the very end and he's just gone hog wild and killed like a. a he kills an entire small airport full of people. It's at least right. 30 to 40 people. Yeah. And that's when he gets his confrontation finally with, with these. I really, I remember, especially the first time I watched it, I was really kind of uh, tickled with the use of the urinal and the mirror. Where yeah. Uh, you know, you just see him pissing blood into the urinal, but you don't see the body because he's a vampire or whatever. You don't uh, see the body or the blood in the air. You see the blood hitting the urinal, which is a very nutty choice. But it, that is actually in the story. That's exactly what happens in the story. Uh, and since we're in spoilers, um, if I can, I'm going to go ahead and note the difference. Yeah, do so. If I, I, I don't know if I'll ever read the. <laughs> no problem. He does still get his comeuppance. It's just a different kind. And like you said, he goes hog wild, which is in the story. And I guess you kind of get the idea in the movie. But in the story, the notion that I got from it is Dwight, the night flyer, is throwing a fit, basically, because he keeps telling Dees to fucking knock it off and Mm -hmm. stop following him. And he doesn't. So he's like, fine. If blood is what you want, blood is what you get. And he kills everybody the next place he lands, knowing that Dees is going to figure it out and follow him. And... He gets there, and it's like you see, he grabs him, stinking meat-like <laughs> breath and the old gnarled fingernails with blood and everything like you see in the movie. You see very little of him. And it's just, he says everything he says to him, he's going to let him live. We're not that much different, you and I, all that shit. And then he takes off, and Dee's is kind of insane. Everything that led up to that point is the same. He's, you always keep shooting, but he finally lost his stomach to shoot, and he runs in the bathroom to puke because he's lost it. And he staggers back out through the literal corpse-strewn terminal <laughs> and runs outside, and like he's watching the night flyer like fly off into the sky when the cops show up and slam him into the car and explain to him how they're going to put him away for what he just did. And you realize that, yeah, with his plane and him going all these places and him uh, the job he does and him being crazy now, all of this yeah. is going to get pinned on him. He's going away for the rest of his life. Criminally yeah. insane, for sure. And that's how it ends. He's like laughing, watching the plane go away. Like he's just completely gibbering, you know, or <laughs> gibbering, you know, yeah. just nuts. Just <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's a cool little ending. But the movie ending, is about a million times better. Stephen King himself said so. <laughs> because they just, they go all the way with it. And it's fucking awesome. What do you think about the last, like, seven, eight minutes? Yeah, I thought the, the last few minutes really elevated the, the movie overall. I, now, do you hear you describe the ending of the story? I kind of like that. <laughs> but I do, I do like the ending of the, of the movie as well. The... There's something about the voice of the Night Flyer when he's talking to Ferrer that's really, it's a little theatrical, maybe a little too much, but it's really yeah. creepy and effective anyway. But um, I mean, this is the guy that literally does dress around, you know, walk around dressed <laughs> like an old-timey vampire. So the whole theatrical thing, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. it's, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with you, though. I do. <laughs> and then I really love the, uh, the sequence where after he makes him drink the blood and he sees all the bodies 
yelling at him and stuff. That's really effective. I like that a lot. Um, Everything goes black and white, and all the corpses have like these crazy contacts and fangs and start talking to him. And it becomes like an Italian horror movie all of a sudden. And it's rad as shit. Yeah, I really like that sequence. As far as the design of the creature, of the Nightflyer itself, I... That is never described in the book. That's all for the movie. Oh, really? Okay, I was wondering if they had done anything to describe him. Because there are times where you see him with a human face or whatever, but the the monstrous version <laughs> is pretty gnarly. Uh, I like it quite a bit. I guess it's possible. It's been a long time since I've read it. I do have Nightmares and Dreamscapes, like, literally... I think right above my head. Um, I don't think he describes him. I know he describes what he must look like in the sense of the, um, yeah, the, the puncture wounds are one big one on either side of the neck, just like it is in the movie. So you get the idea that it's a, like basically a fucking tusk (laughs) on the lower jaw and the top jaw. And they bite down like that. I don't, think he ever saw what the face looked like i think it was all just insinuated and it's all just the vibe of him right next to his face at the urinal or the, at the sink um and then he just takes off he definitely doesn't turn around and come back and like you know any of that shit. <laughs> yeah just and kind of a money shot of the movie really. definitely and it's fucking killer it's one of the coolest looking vampire uh designs i've ever seen because it looks like a bat very similar to a bat yeah yeah i uh i really like the more horrific it just goes harder yeah, uh, and it ends worse for D's uh, in a very uh, poetic, horribly poetic way, and it, it, it's a good ending for the character they created too. She gets a good ending. See, that's with, the the one thing that kind of you can't really do with the the book ending is she knows that he's not the one killing all these people. I guess in the in the but movie. she writes it as he is because that's better for her and she becomes the new tabloid star. It's a more cynical ending, but I mean it, it fits the movie. Yeah, uh, but he does. He dies, right? I'm not misremembering. Yeah, right? no, no, no. He fucking okay. yeah. He gets fucking blasted yeah. through the neck. So I mean, <laughs> when he gets blasted through the neck, that's another cool counterpoint to him being a victim mm-hmm. of the vampire, right? Because it leaves those two giant holes on either side. <laughs> you know, which again is not in the story. That's just they were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you know, in a nice little mirror? I just think they. I just think they. They did it really well. That's one of the reasons why I love it so much. I just think it's a really good adaptation of the story. It's not as impressive as something like Flanagan's Gerald's Game, where that was just something I thought, because I didn't even really like the source material. But because of the way the source material was told, um, I thought this is just something that can't be translated from this medium to film. It just wouldn't work as a movie. And Flanagan completely proved me wrong. The Nightflyer story, I really like, but never in a million years did I think, oh, they'll make a good movie out of this. And then even when I read about it in Fango and knew that Miguel Ferrar wasn't attached, I read that. I thought, oh, it'd be perfect. But I didn't follow that up with, and the movie's going to be so kick-ass. I thought, how's that going <laughs> to – I thought, really? What? Do, I mean, isn't that going to be kind of thin? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I guess I'll just see how they do it. And I can't argue with any choice they made. Anything that, that like I said, I might have any – nitpick with i i would have to ascribe to budget reasons i think if they'd had the the means it just looks like everything they were doing was completely in the right direction and and they pulled it off at the end of the day the the budget doesn't matter because the movie works yeah so that's what i think yeah i mean pretty much i'm with you i I liked it a lot (laughs) i (laughs) i don't have any you know other than what i've already talked about i don't have any real complaints about it it does have moments where it looks a little cheap but (laughs) It was made cheaply, so uh, I think it, that's forgivable. It's barely over 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I do pretty- think the cape is a little 
it just makes it a little goofy. <laughs> I mean, I, is do they address in the in the short story why he's wearing that? Oh no, no. Other than um, I don't remember it being in the story. I remember thinking it was an addition to the movie. The pictures you see in the movie, yeah, of him is what younger. is basically like his wallet. <laughs> yeah, that Dee's finds in what is the glove compartment of the plane. Those are clearly of a, a very vintage uh, type, and I think it's just it's just. He's one of the old-timey vampires, and he just <laughs> he's romantic about it, you know? You know, it's like, if I went far enough, I live in Texas, and if I went right, uh, far enough in the right direction, I could find a guy who was dressed, <laughs> maybe the gun belt, like it was fucking 1899. So, I would assume it's much the same. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a choice. It is definitely a choice. Are you not on board with that choice 100%? Uh, I go back and forth, honestly. I think it's, <laughs> I do think it's... Uh, Interesting. You can like forgive I, it when it's Dracula and the Monster Squad. It's a little harder for you to <laughs> that forgiveness when it's Dwight Renfield flying a fucking Cessna. That's what yeah. you're saying. Okay. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair, Christopher. And these are good things to bring up. These are good things to discuss because our, our listeners, potential viewers, these are things they need to know. Yeah, the dude dresses like he's Dracula. The whole cravat red thing with the white dress shirt and the black. But I mean... The, if the collar wasn't quite so high, I think it might have. It's really high, and he likes to be a dramatic bitch leaving a scene. Mm-hmm. He snaps the cape up, like turning away, and you hear the whole whoosh. It's, it's that kind of vampire. Me? I'm on board with it, man. I party with that kind of vampire. Long as it didn't fucking suck my blood, I'm like, dude, you just, you be you. His plane, jet black with red piping. Like yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's super fucking cool. I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that it's cool. <laughs> There, there's this, there's, there are cool little things like that throughout. The idea that it is a flying coffin is an interesting wrinkle and update to the whole vampire mythos and all that <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? It's, it is Stephen King kind of being like Stephen Kingy. It's not a haunted car. You know, the weird shit that he comes up with that made people make fun of him in the 80s. Like, oh, really, Stephen? Christine, a haunted car? What's next? A haunted blender? Come on, man. Hey, history has proven him right on that. Of course it has. And it was right. <laughs> Some of us knew it all along. But there were always people that, you know, would come up with things to be mad about, about interesting little wrinkles like this. I think a flying vampire coffin is cool. But there were learned wags of the time that would be more than happy to tell you, oh, this is Stephen King proving to one and all he has run out of ideas. Because what is this? This is tripe. It's trash. And it's also interesting to find out that apparently the movie does not have very high scores with the online Rotten Tomatoes Metacritic. Yeah, I saw that it it didn't have great reviews and whatnot. but Which surprised me. I mean, there were some... um... Leonard Moulton gave it 2.5 out of 4. That's not terrible. <laughs> not terrible. But, I mean, and not that it matters. It really doesn't. You know, it doesn't make the right. movie any better or worse because the critics did or didn't like it. Same as if it, you know, was a hit or not a hit at the box office. None of that shit matters. But I would have been, I would have expected more critics to be on its side because I, I do think it's legitimately good, even with its, there are faults to it, but I don't think the faults are necessarily artistic ones. I think they're more just collateral damage. You know, it's shots. <laughs> it, it, it just, it had to you take don't the like the, uh, the habit. airline ticket flying up in the air and then transitioning to <laughs> That one was goofy. I'm just. Look, it is the kind of thing that you go, oh, yeah, it's the 90s. Uh, it, the, it did feel like a different movie. I'll admit that. One other thing here, there were apparently plans for a sequel that never happened. Uh, don't know if you saw this. A sequel script entitled Fear of Flying was written. By Pavia 
and King in the mid 2000s, yeah. which is interesting that King was also working on it, uh, focusing more on the Blair character as well as the origins of the Night Flyer killer. That sounds interesting. They couldn't get it financed, so it never happened. But yeah. I, I would have watched that definitely. You know, like I said, I, I know that Stephen King was very pleased with the finished movie and mm-hmm. liked what they did with it. So the notion that he would work with the director on a follow up is pretty cool. I would like to. I will have to tap into see if my we can sources. Find that script. <laughs> I will tap into my sources and see if we can find a uh, script online. Uh, did, so, did the um, this character never appear in any other any other short stories or anything? No, not that I'm aware of. I, I think uh, some other writers, if I'm not mistaken, I think the British writer Kim Newman used Rick Dees in one of his stories, mm-hmm. but uh, Stephen King didn't do anything else with him, as far as I can remember. Well, that's pretty much all I got for the Night Flyer. Anything else you want to point out before we move to some top three action? No, nothing that I can think of. Mm, I guess I would just say it is hard to find. Recently, I went ahead and copped up the money for a brand new DVD. They don't have it on Blu-ray, and the DVD is long out of print. And I paid like close to 40 bucks for it, but it was new. And it is a, it's not non-anamorphic. It's subtitled the whole deal. And uh, okay. it's an old school new line snapper case, like the original blade. Um, It's, it's a good disc and it's worth it. If you are willing to pay it, the movie is definitely worth it. I would recommend it to fans of Stephen King stories, vampire movies, horror mystery type stuff. Like we described it's, it is kind of not really a mystery, but it plays kind of like you're following a mystery where the characters following, they're following the crubs and figuring out what the storyline actually is. That kind of thing. I would definitely recommend it to fans of that. If you wanted to spring for a DVD or if you've seen it and want to go get it, but, uh, (laughs) there's another way you can watch it. I think it's how Chris watched it. How did you watch it, Chris? Yeah, it's on YouTube. You can find it there pretty easily. Uh, I actually watched it on YouTube a couple years ago for the first time. And I don't know if it's the same one. I think there are a couple few different, uh, versions on YouTube. You can track down but it's a pretty it's pretty good quality for what it is on youtube it, it, it is i think it's in full 1.85 to 1 widescreen and it, it's, it's not good. on hbo max or whatever no. because it's a because new, of the new movie. because it, of the new line shit yeah it was just premiered on hbo but um weirdly my my dvd the box of it itself says both new line and hbo video on it which is i've never seen that before so <laughs> maybe hbo video like is like their home video distribution arm or something. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a contractual thing. And I have seen it with other studios. I just never seen it with HBO and New Line. I mean, those two specifically. So I'm sure that they've, I would imagine lawyers are still fucking battling in court over rights somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find it on YouTube. It's worth seeing for sure. I liked it quite a bit. And I think I liked it more this time than I did the first time I watched it a couple years ago. Right on. It's for sure worth checking out. For our top three this month, I went with top three. This is kind of a broad category. A lot of stuff to choose from. Top yeah, three it really cinematic. is. Because <laughs> my, my, three the three I picked tonight could be different than the three I would pick tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just saying that's how broad the thing is. Top three cinematic vampires. So sometimes I just do three, not necessarily in order, but I think I've got them in order this time. So number three. Maybe a little bit out of left field. I know you're a fan of this movie, so you know maybe not too surprising. Thomas Ian Griffith as Valak in All John right. Carpenter's Vampires. All right. Uh, not a perfect movie, but a fun one. And 
Uh, some people think Valak is boring. I've seen people talk about that uh, yeah. in regards to this movie. Uh, I think just his physical presence is so intimidating. Like, he's a big dude, scary-looking dude, fucking gnarly fangs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, he's there, too. It's very striking, that yeah. whole look. You know, and then of the other masters when they show up, including Chad Stahelski. But mm. I, I have never thought Thomas Ian Griffith was like the most charismatic motherfucker. <laughs> but I think he's really good as Valak because they, like you said, they just want him to be this big, imposing, like, oh, I'm the fucking vampire master who will eat you. Yeah, and very few lines. Like, yeah. Give him, don't let him fuck it up. You know? <laughs> I, think he, I think he's great in vampires. Number two, Vampire Jack Bauer, Kiefer Sutherland as David oh. and the Lost Boys. All right. Uh, Lost Boys is probably my favorite vampire movie. I'm not even, you know, vampires is one of those, vampire movies is one of those like horror subgenres that I'm kind of bored with at some point. Like, and in some ways, like, yeah, there's going to be good ones still coming out, but. For the most part, if I hear, oh, there's a new vampire movie, I'm not going to get excited unless unless the trailer really does something to, to impress me. Just because there have been so many. But um, The Lost Boys, that was the first, that might be the first hardcore R-rated horror movie I saw when I was a teenager. And I mean, it's not even that hardcore, but for, for the 80s, there's some pretty gruesome stuff in it. Yeah. For, for a mainstream horror movie. There are I really like it. absolutely where it goes hard. <laughs> and uh, Keeper Sutherland, like, that's... Still, the, like the first thing I think of now is 24. But if I'm talking movies, the first movie I think of with Keith Sutherland is always going to be Lost Boys. And he's great as David. And it's iconic. Num- I agree. Uh, and my number one uh, su- shouldn't be surprising no one that knows me well. Duncan Rigger has Dracula in the Monster Squad. My favorite Dracula and indeed my favorite vampire. Very classic uh, Hollywood suave vampire look but he's really intimidating as well not just when he's bearing the fangs and calling <laughs> calling her calling a, bitch. a bitch you know one of my favorite moments from from that movie is you know he, he throws the dynamite into the treehouse and yes. meeting adjourned which is cool and then when he's the dad confronts him in the lawn uh he just like stares at him and says uh you know, I will have your son. And then yeah. he flies away. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> I think he's perfect as Dracula. I've never really seen him in anything else, I don't think. I know he played Zorro, uh, I think, on a TV show around that time. There was an old, I think I want to call it, I think it was called Wizards and Warriors or something. Jeff Conaway from fucking Taxi was the... Mm-hmm good guy and duncan regeer was the bad guy and it was like some fantasy thing like after conan hit it was a tv show for cbs and so it was kind of comedic like he had the you know roly-poly sidekick you know for comic relief and duncan regeer was the bad guy and so when monster squad hit i was like that's that guy from that tv show no one else remembers that fucking show (laughs) but i watched it because i loved conan sword sorcery shit and it was on cbs it was on tv but yeah he is great as Dracula. He is probably my favorite too, even though it's not the Dracula story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just the Dracula character, but he rules. But anyway, that's my top three cinematic vampires. What do you got? Well, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are. I mean, do we count Blade? Because if Blade mm-hmm. counts, he's number one. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, there's just so many, Chris. <laughs> um, I guess I'll have to go with, because there's so many and I want to just call out a few that are out of left field as you would say david is obviously just beyond awesome right (laughs) 
of the Lost Boys, your picks are great. You can't go wrong with those. There's just, fuck, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein, Joshua John Miller as uh, the clan in Near Dark. Mm-hmm. There's just so many, dude. There's so many. But I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go with Nomak from Blade 2 because I love that design. With the mouth opening up. Yes, the predator kind of thing. The, Guillermo just loves that as his vampire biology because he returned to it in The Strain. And I, and I do like Nomak as a character. He hates vampires. <laughs> he hates what he is. You know, so he hates vampires, which is what he used to be. And I just think it works really well for the whole Guillermo del Toro bringing a little bit of heightened Shakespearean bullshit to his his comic book movie. And I just really love the design. I love his kung fuin, and I dig it. He's number three. Number two is a kind of a cheat, but fuck anybody who has anything to say about it. It's my list. <laughs> it's not so much a cinematic vampire character as it is the cinematic vampires of one movie, and that is the vampires of Daybreakers. And the reason I say that is because that's a movie where vampires are basically the main characters. It's a world of vampires, and there's very few humans. Mm-hmm. And there are two kinds of vampires in this vampire world. There's the kind of vampires we see in movies like Interview with the Vampire and shit like that, where they look like people, except for maybe they have contacts, maybe their skin like shows their blue veins a little more, and they've got their their fangs out or whatever maybe some pointy ears or something but they 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 look like people 80 percent of them right but then there's the other kind of vampire from other vampire movies which is humanoid in shape kind of but way more like a bat and you couldn't just put a hat on one of these people (laughs) and you know have them walk down the street and fool motherfuckers like these other kind of vampires because in the world of daybreakers the vampires that have taken over the world uh and are the ruling class that are the you know the top of the food chain now they are that first kind of vampire, and they just kind of walk around looking like that. But if they run, the idea in this world of Daybreakers, they're running out of blood because they've eaten all of us people, yeah. <laughs> um, which is a very, you know, that is a, a very logical idea. In fact, a cousin of mine once brought that up. He was like, I want to write a story where vampires are breaking, uh, taking over the world, but then they, they run out of blood because they drink all the people and they have to come up with, you know, a blood supply and i was like oh that's interesting then they made this movie i'm sure it's not the way he would have done it but that idea clearly isn't something that's out there so the idea being that these vampires if they're starving by not having this blood they begin to regress into what is essentially the neanderthal version of vampires which is these more bat-like and they lose their ability to process uh thoughts the same way their intelligence lowers their ability to reason they become more like dumb savage animals just monsters essentially not thinking just monsters and i love the idea that there's a vampire movie out there that has both of those in it um and does it so well that's number two and then number one is eve in only lovers left alive have i mentioned how much i love tilda swin yes have i mentioned how much i love only lovers left alive I'm not the sure. Ultimate, I, I know I've never seen that, but I I've heard about it before. Maybe it's my you. favorite vampire movie. Which many years ago I would have picked something quote unquote cooler and more exciting, <laughs> like The Lost Boys, you know, or Blade. And don't get me wrong; those are still five star movies that I would never want to live without. But Jim Jarmusch made a basically a hangout movie that has vampires, played by Tom Hiddleston and the great Tilda Swinton, and it's just kind of a, a perfect weird little movie. I love it more than I love most things. And she is a perfect being in it. She's 
eminently wise and somehow kind for a vampire, but still savage because she's a vampire. <laughs> um, and she's funny and she's seen so much, but she's still, you know, she hasn't started looking for a wooden bullet to kill herself like <laughs> Hiddleston is doing. She still wants to live and read all the books. And it's just a really, really cool take on vampires. And she's perfect. He's he's amazing. Tom Hiddleston is great. They are one of my favorite cinematic duos, couples, whatever you want to call it. But she is fucking Tilda Swinton. And because of that, she gets the nod. She wins. And that's why she... When did that movie come out? 2014, 13, 12, 11, somewhere around there. The early teens. Let me look it up. 2013. Yeah. It's on Pluto right now for free. It is just about two hours. It's got Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston, Mia Wasikowska. Mm-hmm. or however you say her name. And this is the most I've ever liked her. And I really love Crimson Peak, Yeah, but I feel her character is pulled back a bit more than I wish I would see her. I want to see her be more romantic. Anyway, she's really good in this. John Hurt is in it. He's great because he's John Hurt. Anton Yelchin is great in it because he was Anton Yelchin and he was always great. And Jeffrey Wright is in a couple of scenes. And nice. again, he's Jeffrey Wright. So they put people who are great in a movie <laughs> and the movie is great. I don't know what else to tell you. It's yeah. a killer. I thought I would have thought I would have brought that up before. Uh, you may have because I know I've heard that I've heard of the movie. If uh, we ever I- did anything about favorite vampire movies, I would have brought it up there. <laughs> so yeah, that's my pick, my brother. All right. Well, uh, before we roll out, uh, anything you've seen recently you want to shine a light on? Well, let me think here. I did watch tonight the old 1960 George Powell, The Time Machine with Rod Taylor and Yvette Mimieux. Have you ever seen that one? From when? 1960, the old H.G. Wells, The no, Time Machine. The only time machine, I'm, uh, Guy Pierce classic. Oh. It's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> I did not hate that when I saw it. I expected to hate it, and I was like, well, this is for what it is. It's fine. I watched it just the once, and I remember thinking a lot of it is way too similar to Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes uh, with the way the, um, what do they call those Morloid people (laughs) in uh, Time Machine? They're called the Morlocks. I don't know if they called that still for the remake, but. Gotcha. And I liked it when he went to the, he stopped in the future when the moon was collapsing or being blown apart or whatever. That was cool. Yeah, I remember there being some really interesting visuals and stuff in it. You know, them making a head Morlock played by Jeremy Irons. You know, that's not, that's not. But I mean, it was directed by H.G. Wells' like great grandson or something. And that's something. Yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah. It, but the original, anyway, I saw when I was like seven, eight, maybe. There's no way I was older than eight. And it was a huge thing for me as a kid. Very formative with genre stuff for me. So I have always loved it. And I haven't watched it in a long time. It's on Blu-ray for very cheap. And I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. I also rewatched for the first time in a long time Enemy Mine from 1985, directed by the great German director Wolfgang Peterson, who recently left us. Kind of like a Twilight Zone episode in the sense that it's, you know, racism is bad, don't do it. Mm-hmm. War is bad. Hating, you know, your enemy because he looks different than you is dumb. That's not a good reason for war. Yeah. It's that, but sci fi with. Dennis Quaid playing a human and Lou Gossett Jr. playing an alien uh, known as a Drac in some pretty severe makeup, doing mm-hmm. some pretty severe choices as the alien. <laughs> and I fucking love it, dude. I love Enemy Mine. It's not the easiest thing to find, but I got a, an Umbrella region-free Blu-ray and re-watching it. God damn, I'm glad I did. It's so good. It, then, it is, um, I watched that, or at least parts of it when I was 
young, maybe on uh, HBO or whatever. Is that set in the future or? Yeah. No, it's in the future. Gotcha. Yeah, it's in the future. And yes, it's almost certain that you saw it on HBO. That's where I saw <laughs> it originally. They played it on HBO all the time. And I watched it every chance I could every time I saw it on. That was very formative for me as a kid. Yeah, that was great. So I would recommend anybody who can who wants to see a, a you know, again, it, it's Twilight Zone. The way that Rod Serling would take a, a science fiction or genre story and tell you an entertaining story in that fashion. But also it would have social commentary or some deeper themes to it that made it more than just an average programmer. And Enemy Mine is really good. Lou Gossett Jr. is fucking great. Dennis Quaid's really great, but Lou Gossett Jr. is doing some things as the alien. You, you have to see it, dude. It's good. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to revisit it. What about you? Before I go with my recent watches, you, you, you brought up Dennis Quaid, you know, being an enemy of mine. I don't remember if I brought this up to you in another time we talked or not, but uh, when I was on my Harrison Ford kick, watching a bunch of Harrison Ford movies after Dollar Destiny came out last summer, I remember thinking like, "Who is the poor man's? Who is the you poor son man's of Harrison a bitch. Ford?" <laughs> Who is the I poor love man's Dennis Quaid. Harrison Ford? Hey, I are do you going to say the same thing about Jeff Bridges or Kurt Russell? See, or are you going to say thing. that like Dennis Quaid initial... is the poor man's Kurt Russell or, Je- or Jeff Bridges? <laughs> Initially, my, my instinct after, you know, when I was thinking, who's the poor man's Harrison Ford? My instinct was Kurt Russell. And I was like, no, Kurt Russell's been in too many iconic movies. He, he, he's got his own, he's doing his own thing. Kurt he Russell really... is fucking Kurt Russell. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> not He's not a poor man's anybody. And, and he doesn't really fit the same bill as as Harrison Ford. But to me, Dennis Quaid is the right answer for who's the poor man's Harrison Ford. And I love Dennis Quaid too, but just, he's the guy. Especially, That's all I'm saying. I'm hurt. <laughs> especially as he's gotten older, you know, he sounds even more like Harrison Ford. He just, he just seems like, you know, if you can't get Harrison Ford in the nineties, Hey, there's Dennis Quaid. <laughs> we, we can't quite get Harrison Ford. Do what? Yeah, to a degree. I I think, see, here's the thing. Harrison Ford is my favorite, much like you. I often make jokes online about him being my dad. Um, and I don't really think that or even hope that. It's just fun for me to say. But because I do love him. I, I love Harrison Ford. I have since I was a kid. He seems like the coolest and he just makes a lot of really great movies and he's always great in them. So he's always been my default number one. But from the time I was a kid around this time, the eighty the 80s, around the mid-80s, the three guys I gravitated towards, aside from the default of my dad, was Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, and Dennis Quaid. They all three, it's funny because, you know, thinking of Harrison Ford and any of them being, or any or one of them being possibly the poor man's Harrison Ford, they're all kind of in the same ballpark. Yeah, they're all in the same lane, sort of. Yeah, I guess that's what I gravitated to as a kid. Uh, (laughs) That's what sparked me. It's a good Um, lane. And it's interesting because thinking about it now, in terms of all of them in relation to each other, Dennis Quaid is the one who has suffered the most in terms of material. As I got older, Kurt Russell still gets good shit. Jeff Bridges still gets good shit. Maybe Dennis Quaid got offered good shit and said, fuck you, I don't want that good shit. I want this (laughs) shit shit. But I don't think so. Because he made a lot of good shit for a long time. And he was always good in it. And so I just kind of wonder, did Randy fuck it up for him? (laughs) Was it Randy? Can we lay that at Randy Quaid's feet? We can't put that on him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Quaid has definitely had the least success, but he's still very successful and been in a lot of great movies. And- oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, at a certain point, especially as he got to a certain age. Mm-hmm. It seems like Bridges has, he's only gotten more praise as he's gotten older and, and bigger, yeah. like not bigger box office like roles, but bigger. He didn't like, get his best actor until late. You know, that didn't happen yeah. for Kurt Russell. Not that he 
doesn't deserve a best actor. I think he's been good enough in parts that he's done that he's definitely, you know, award worthy. But yeah, I mean, Bridges is definitely the critical darling out of the three of them. You know, uh, speaking of Kurt Russell and tying that back to our last episode, kind of, sort of, I just listened to him and Wyatt Russell on Conan O'Brien's podcast. Uh, oh, shit. And it was a treat. <laughs> a lot of rollicking laughter, I am sure. Yeah, those those guys seem like the coolest dudes to hang out with, <laughs> the, the, the Russells, I mean. They seem uh, like they have a good time. But yeah, again, poor man's Harrison Ford is the highest of praise. So I did, I'm in as I will, Then I will take it as such. Yeah. For me, uh, stuff I've watched uh, kind of recently, um, one thing I'll shout out on Hulu, uh, Miguel Wants to Fight. Have you seen that? No, I don't even know what that is. So I, I primarily watch this only because uh, two of my favorite guys from formerly of The Ringer uh, wrote the script, Shea Serrano and oh. uh, Jason Concepcion. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Both think are really funny. They, th- those two guys actually have an NBA podcast now that's really uh, funny that I listen to as well. But they wrote the script for this. It's basically about this kid in high school that um, him and his friends always get into these big fights and he sort of like cowers into the background while his friends fight. He's never really actually been in a fight and through different things that are happening in the movie, he wants to get into his first fight and uh, it's kind of a little bit of uh, Scott Pilgrim, a little bit of uh, Superbad. You know, it's, it's a teen comedy, pretty, a lot of vulgar stuff in it, which is always uh, funny. Yes. <laughs> And it's just a really charming movie. I really liked it a lot. I think it's like an hour and 25 minutes, pretty brisk pace, uh, and, and just a really fun flick. Uh, so check that out on Hulu if you haven't seen it. Uh, Definitely. And those guys also, uh, you know, speaking of uh, Serrano and Concepcion, you know, Serrano was public enemy number one on Twitter for a couple of days on film Twitter because he yes. said some stuff about not liking old movies or black and white movies or something. Um, it was stupid. But they've they've also got a TV series on Freebie called Primo. That has I have got heard a lot of that. good attention. Yeah, I haven't actually. I've watched the first episode. I haven't watched any more besides that. But uh, it's got a lot of good attention on a lot of like best of TV lists and stuff too. So I'm wanting to get into more of that and check some of that. that out. It's just like a sitcom, family sitcom. But um, other stuff I've watched recently. I finished watching the Alien series. I watched Alien Three and Alien Resurrection. After I had watched the, the the first two fairly recently, and uh, still don't like either one of those, <laughs> Alien Three. Uh, you know, I think we talked about it on previous episode. You know, I never really got past the fact that they killed Newt and Hicks. Yeah, uh, from the previous movie. Uh, you like off screen? All that upset about it if you don't even know his name. He has a name. <laughs> Michael Bean is his name. He plays the same character. In Ouch. <laughs> uh, no, but I, yeah, I, I've never, you know, I don't, I've seen that once before. Didn't really like it. Didn't like it much more this time. Sigourney Weaver is great as Ripley. She does a really good job. And Charles Dutton's great in the movie as well. But overall, I just think it's a pale, very pale imitation of the first Alien. Uh, and I'd rather watch that than watch this one again. And Resurrection I don't really like it either. I think it's better than Alien 3. The tone is like unlike any of the other movies in the franchise, which throws me off. Like it's kind of like the goofy shit where the guy's ricocheting bullets off stuff. It doesn't seem to fit in in this kind of in, in the Alien franchise. Really like Ron Perlman in it. There's like cool stuff in it. Like the scene where, and maybe you can help shed some light on this because I was kind of curious. They've got the alien, like they got some xenomorphs trapped uh, in this facility. And... Two of them gang up on the third to like bleed him out basically to escape, you know, because of yeah. for their, with their acid blood. So, did that third one like willingly sacrifice itself, or was no. it like, oh shit, you guys are killing me? Yeah, I mean, you 
it's not like that scene is subtitled or anything like that. Right. But, you know, the two of them turn to the third and start like <laughs> turning on it. And the one is like, no, motherfucker, no. Yeah. What, what is all this? And then they just start killing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they came up with them. They're like, we got to get out of here. <laughs> like you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah. Let's yeah. fucking kill Bob. And they go fucking kill Bob. Yeah, and they're that, like, Bob. That part is really cool. I like that scene um, quite a bit. And I like the the way they try and play out the human alien hybrid or whatever it is at the end. They like, give it like, they show the emotion in its face and stuff. Yeah. And, and Ripley's really conflicted about it. That That's a cool element. I uh, find that scene, in, you know, there's not a lot of people on board with me here. I find that whole <laughs> shit very disturbing. Um, oh, I agree. I think it is <laughs> disturbing. And that's one of the elements I kind of like about it, though. I mean, I thought that worked pretty well. I, I but think, overall. I think, and I don't mean this to be an asshole, and I'm not saying you are being like xenophobic <laughs> or anything. But really, I think what throws you and what you're not 100% on board with is it's super fucking French. Yeah. You know, because of Genet, that goofy comic sensibility that he brings to it that comes out of nowhere is like weird sense of humor. Dominic, Dominique. Pino or whatever his name is as uh, Vries, the little uh, the, the little guy in the chair. Yeah, it's it's a weird fucking movie, man. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. But I like it because of that, and I like it because the tone is different. I think we mentioned this before. I mean, I'm talking about the movies in the series going up through part four anyway, and it's not like I dislike Prometheus or Covenant even. I like those both on their own terms, but I don't necessarily consider them part of the Alien franchise in the main. They're kind of like a like a side franchise, kind of like uh, the ADP movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a tree. There's branches, and <laughs> there's two more branches with those. In the first four movies, I like them all. Do I say all four of them are five star classics? No, just the first two. The first two are masterpieces. Yeah, but I like three probably the least, and I like four definitely behind two and one. <laughs> uh, but they're all and I like because they're all different. I just like it. It's kind of like what. The Mission Impossible series was going to be before McQuarrie yeah. took over. And I'm not mad about that because his movies have been, by and large, rad as fuck. I mean, they all have been awesome. I do think the new one is the least out of all of them, surprisingly. Yeah, I liked right, it. Part one? Yeah. I liked it a lot, mm-hmm. but I like Fallout and Rogue Nation more. Anyway, that's a whole different thing. I like that the first four alien movies are all very distinct takes on the same general notion. Mm-hmm. I don't think they all work as well, obviously. That's why I think two are masterpieces and two are not. <laughs> but I like Alien 3. It's the darkest and most dour and, you know, the most, not just cynical, but fatalistic. The the sense of doom yeah. hanging over thing over everything like a funeral the whole time. And I think that's very much Fincher's idea. I think if any, Fincher hates it, won't even talk about it. If anything, yeah. he probably wishes it was darker. And that's why Seven is as fucked up as it is. He's like, Fox wouldn't let me do this. So, <laughs> goddammit, her head goes in the box. And then Genet's is just, Genet, whatever his fucking name is. His movie's just fucking weird. But I like it. I like it a lot. I'm sorry they still don't work for you. I can't say I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean? I mean, again, I, I like Resurrection a lot more than Three. And there are definitely things about Resurrection I do like. But overall, it's just like... And I would so much rather spend my time watching the first two than these. Um, I am looking forward definitely to Fede Alvarez's Alien movie, which apparently was going theatrical now. It was intended, I think, to be on Hulu, much like Prey. But I believe it's supposed to get a theatrical release now, which is cool. And it's got a good cast. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah. Prometheus I liked, and I I really, really, really didn't like 
Covenant. Covenant. <laughs> the first time I watched it. I'm probably going to give it another shot, but I know that just the story elements, I know I'm going to hate it again because I really hated David the Xenomorphs. <laughs> it's, anyway, uh, the last one I got, I actually watched this one last night, and I believe it's on MGM Plus, but I had to rent it because I don't have that service. But uh, Bottoms, have you seen Bottoms yet? The, no, uh, but I want to. Yeah, it looks hilarious. Yeah, I really liked it, and it was not quite what I was expecting, really, as far as, like, the tone. Like, it it borders, like, one of those parody movies almost at times. <laughs> I heard it seems almost like a live-action cartoon. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it, too. And then, at one point, my friend that I was watching it with was, like, kind of compared it to Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, it's it, this movie just takes place in its own little world with its own <laughs> its own rules and its own perspective and, and, and everything. It's really a unique movie, I thought, and I, it was just really, really funny. I really liked it a lot. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad one to hear of, that because, I mean, I'm stoked. Yeah, one of that, No Hard Feelings, and uh, Please Don't Destroy, which is another one I've seen recently, It's which is on Peacock. Those are like the three comedies from this year that I thought were all really great. So highly recommend Bottoms. And that's pretty much it. I guess that's all I got. You want to let people know where they can find you on the internet before we shut her down? Sure. You can find me at Blue Sky at ajmccready.bsky.social. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I, I'm on Instagram. I think Alberto AJ Man is what I'm on out there. I really only just use Blue Sky. So come chat at me about movies or music or anything nerdy. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and even Blue Sky, at BrodyMan34. That's pretty much my handle on all those. The show also has uh, an Instagram and a Twitter at Small Screeners. And then I also have a uh, letterbox net that I'm using now, uh, which is Disco Shrew. Uh, there's also a letterbox for Brody Man 34 that I used a long time ago and never really used it. And I think it's still on there, but I don't. But anyway, Disco Shrew is the one I use. So if anybody wants to see what I think of uh, movies, you can check it out there as well as the end of the show. But that's pretty much it. We're going to get out of here and we will see you guys in a month. Peace. He did things to an audience no performer had ever done before. He electrified millions on television, on the Hollywood screen, but most of all, in person. His name was Elvis. He was a legend, an idol. In the first motion picture to reveal the whole story of the man whose music moved the world. Elvis, the boy who had a dream. The teenager who wanted to be different. The son who found happiness in his mother's love. I think that you're the best son any woman ever had. The singing sensation who made the girls scream and their men explode. Elvis, the way the world saw him. Come on, man, let's give us a break. You and Dan, they're going to get married? The way he really was. You want to be able to walk around and see things. How amongst people, you know, just, just be free. Just be playing little old me instead of the game. Since my baby left me. The way you'll always remember it. Well, Kurt Russell is Elvis. You think you're out there? No way! You think you're 